So welcome to Young Urban Zen on a Tuesday. My name is Kodo. I believe that one of my teachers is fond of uh, saying this, that when it comes to sitting for Dharma talks, whether you're, uh, whether you're speaking or whether you're attending, that nothing has to happen, actually. And uh, isn't that a relief? I mean, where else can you say that? Nothing has to happen. It uh, takes the pressure off. And regardless of how it goes, the Dharma is manifest. So what then? There's this, there's this teaching from Suzuki Roshi. And he says, there's nothing new for us to study. But, he continues, Buddha's teaching will give light by which you can know yourself. And the light by which we can see ourselves like a mirror is Buddhist teaching. That's Suzuki from July of 71, the last year of his life. So with, with talks and with stories, it's usually desire that holds stories together. It's sort of the glue that makes it work, a uh, story and... It's what compels a talk often, but maybe the Dharma is a little bit different and maybe simpler. And in the absence of desire to move us along, there's an alternative, uh, something we can do together. Uh, one of the Japanese words for a Dharma talk is teisho. Teisho. And I have been made to understand that this means to celebrate the Dharma. So maybe, maybe rather than gluing together a talk with desire we'll talk in terms of celebration for tonight and uh, i want to celebrate something in particular the theme of this talk and that's the simplicity of our practice and to give some expression to our practice of simplicity itself of course this comes along with exploring some of the obstacles that we encounter and we may also we may also glimpse some of the ways that such a practice of simplicity can support a vision and a conduct of harmonious relationship. So Zazen, I mean, taking the posture and remaining in silence for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, what could be more simple? What could be more simple than that? And one of the beauties of the path of practice is that we're endowed from the beginning with what we need. Endowed, with, endowed from the beginning with just what we need to take the next step, to take the next step. This brought to mind for me a, a very old story of our 17th uh, ancestor in India, 17th ancestor in the lineage after Shakyamuni Buddha. So the story starts with the seventeenth um, ancestor Sogyanandai, whose name is uh, whose name means friend of the sangha. Sogyanandai. And Sogyanandai had taken up the he had the responsibility of having inherited this practice. And the responsibility is that one takes an oath, one takes a vow to to not have the lineage be cut off. One makes the promise to pass on the Buddha way or the light of the ancestors, 
the lamp of the ancestors. So Sogyananda is on this walking tour with a, with a group of monks living this renunciate life, this life of simplicity. I like to imagine, when I think of Sogyananda so long ago, I like to imagine his whole assembly in single file on alms round and then walking in this elegant, simple silence and receiving these gifts of food. So Sogyananda and the assembly arrive in the region where Buddha had been enlightened, in Magadha, and also where there lived this very special child. And upon arrival in the region, in Magadha, uh, according to the, the story, this cool breeze suddenly arose and swept over Sogyanandai and the whole group and brought, brought this uh, refreshed pleasure to their bodies and to their minds. And since his, the, the monks who were with him didn't understand, but why is this, why is this happening, this fresh wind? Sogyanandai says to them, this is the wind of breath. This is the wind of religious virtue. There must be some saintly person who continues on as heir to the lamp of the ancestors. So Sogyananda was reading the signs and interpreted this moment. He, he was thinking, there's, some, there's, someone, there's someone here who is an heir of the Buddha. So he continued following the signs. One was a purple cloud in the sky that led him over a mountain. And then Sogyananda approaches this mountain dwelling and he catches sight of a child. And it's a child who's in possession of this bright, perfect mirror. We learn that the, this child has been, he'd been born with this mirror and it had accompanied him everywhere. When he was sitting down, the bright mirror would appear before him when he's um, uh, walking or standing or when he's laying down to rest, this, this perfect bright mirror was there. And to me, this, this echoes, even this child has this mirror that accompanies it. It echoes to me how we, we have from the beginning exactly what we need for the path of practice. We have this mirror-like awareness. It's with us all the time. And it's in fact the path of our sitting practice. It's celebrated in the liturgy and it's the characteristics of the mirror, I think, that are so interesting. It's that the mirror, it can receive all images without being deformed, uh, without, being, without its shape changing. And it can let every image go without there being a blemish. So the child has this mirror. And we have this capacity. I think that's worth celebrating. Simple, straightforward awareness. So Sogyananda and the, the assembly approach. The child walks right up to them. Sogyananda asks, asks the child, naturally, how old are you? And the child says, a hundred years old. And what do you make of that? What, is that? what does that mean? And what sort of complexity does that introduce into the story? 
There's bound to be something there, as the story's been handed down for something like 700 years since the time it, this one was written. But before we follow a trail of complexity, there's one more part to the exchange I want to mention. Sogyanandai points to the mirror and he says, that in your hand, what does it show? The child says this, the great perfect mirror of the Buddhas has no flaw or blemish inside or out. The great perfect mirror of the Buddhas has no flaw or blemish inside or out. All people will be able to see it alike because the eyes of the true nature all resemble each other. I'm not sure what I would make of this if I heard a child say it, but uh, reading it reading it in The Transmission of Light, Master, Master Kazan, I find that very encouraging. It reminds me of how simple our practice can be, how simple awareness can be. And somehow, somehow along with that, very soon after arises the question, how long does our relationship to experience remain so simple? How does it get complicated? But the simplicity of awareness, how do we practice with that? There's a different Zen teacher who says, um, it's something that even a, a three-year-old child could say, but even an elder in their 80s can't practice, maintaining simple awareness. It's not so easy. It quickly becomes complicated. And I think of this, when I, when I think of all the ways that um, we can make this distinction of our practice internally and our practice externally, we think of all the applications of, of the practice and think about the personal, the interpersonal, the institutional, and the systemic, the, the complexity starts to build quite quickly. And I think, I think there, are, there are a lot of um, meaningful concerns in these different layers. Just for tonight, I want to focus on the internal and um, look actually at some of the ways that we complexify our experience internally, this simple mirror awareness. And I want to look at the hindrances, which are uh, five, maybe all too common arisings that hinder the mind's settling into itself. So classically, classically, these are expressed in a metaphor. And here these are paraphrased by Gil Fronstall. And the five hindrances are sense desire, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor. The fourth is uh, sometimes called worry and flurry. Um, I, I, I like to refer to that one as anxiousness. And the fifth is doubt. So the, the, the metaphor used to talk about these hindrances, and for our purposes tonight, the way that our simple, clear, straightforward relationship to experience um, can be complicated. So in, in this paraphrasing by Gil Fronstall, he says that these obscure the clarity of the mind 
And the metaphor is that of the pond. You may have heard this before. Uh, when the pond is clean and the surface is still, the water reflects our image, just like the mirror. But with the effect of sensual desire, it's like looking into the pond, but it's been dyed. You might be more familiar with the, the, the coloring of rose-colored glasses. When under the influence of ill will, the pond water is boiling. We can't see our reflection anymore because the, the surface is so agitated. Sloth and torpor is like having this thick layer of algae grown over the top. Can't see through. Anxiousness or worry and flurry is like having the wind churn up the wind, the, uh, the pond's surface. And then doubt is like having the water filled with mud, clouded. So he goes on to say, because we tend not to see clearly when the hindrances are present, the teachings strongly encourage people uh, not to make decisions while under their influence. And if possible, to wait to make a decision when the mind is more settled or clear. So what I'd like to add here is that the, the arising of the hindrances, these five um, complexities of the mind, they're not errors, and they're certainly not personal flaws. They're, they are the path of practice, encountering, encountering the hindrances and returning to the simplicity of awareness. It's almost like, it's almost like the arising of a hindrance is a request it's a request for clear and simple awareness. And while the hindrances can disturb this very straightforward and simple relationship to experience, uh, and we can't see our face reflected in the pool of water anymore, or in the mirror, as it were, um, this, is a, this is a moment, this is a full manifestation of this moment of experience. And now, because they're so common, these hindrances, it's one reason why they're emphasized over and over and over again as practical points to know for meditators, those who walk a meditative path. Now, among possible approaches to returning to simplicity, for working with these hindrances, there are at least two approaches suggested by another famous Zen story about a poetry contest. comes from uh, the Platform Sutra and is introduced by uh, John McRae in this way. He says, the, the text is a brilliant consummation of early Chan, a masterpiece that created a new understanding of the past, even as it pointed the way to a new style of Chan practice. So the story goes like this. It's another ancestor, the fifth ancestor named Hongren. And he's approaching the end of his life. And... Um, He's instructed all of uh, the disciples in his temple to compose a verse, a mind verse, to demonstrate their understanding. Hongren, too, just as Sogyanandai, had uh, taken this oath to pass on, to pass on the Dharma uh, to the next heir. 
seems natural, the way to discern the, the, who would become the sixth ancestor um, might require some discernment of their understanding. So Holmgren instructs, he says, if one of these verses manifests a complete understanding of Dharma, then the author will receive the robe and the status of the sixth ancestor. The response is interesting. All of the disciples but one ignores the instructions because they defer to the head monk, the head student. They already, in their minds, they already know who's going to win this poetry contest, so why bother? So this head monk, who everyone assumes will be the next leader, is named Shen Shu. Shen Shu. And Shen Shu himself was a little disturbed, actually, by the teacher's request. And we get an insight into uh, a moment of self-doubt. Shen Shu is saying to himself, the others won't present their verses because I'm their teacher. But if I don't offer a verse, how can the fifth ancestor estimate the understanding in my mind? If I'm seeking to be the sixth ancestor, then that can't be justified. Because that would be like a common person, just old, ordinary old me, taking this saintly position. But if I don't offer my verse, then I can't learn the Dharma. So he was perplexed. In the end, Shinshu does decide to compose a verse, and he's still a bit, um, he still tries to do it in hiding. So he does it late at night. He inscribes it on the wall in one of the corridors of the monastery. So Shinshu's verse, I think, is suggestive of some, some way we can relate to these hindrances complexities of the mind and return to the simplicity of our practice. And his verse reads like this. Four lines. The body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror's stand. At all times we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. So again, the body is the Bodhi tree the tree under which the Buddha awakens. The mind is like a bright mirror's stand. At all times we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. So this is one approach to tending to simple awareness, I'll say, um, to keeping our practice simple, and, and that is to polish, polish the mirror not to let any dust collect. The hindrances will arise, we dust them away. Um, maybe in more practical terms, hindrances arise and we pick up one of the classic remedies to um, restore and sustain the simplicity of our relationship to experience. We polish the mirror. In very brief, some of the classic remedies to the hindrances, all of them include mindful recognition. This is what's happening. This is what's happening now. This is a moment of sense desire. This is a moment of sloth and torpor, or this is a moment of doubt. Also, classic remedies, uh, seeing the impermanence or the arising and the ceasing of the component parts that make up a hindrance, the experience of a hindrance. 
And then it's also taught that a sort of experimenting, playful attitude can be helpful. I think we talk about that a lot as curiosity. Very helpful when the hindrances come to visit. And then there are many other classic remedies. I'll also add two of my own, or one, one suggestion and one reflection. The suggestion is when the hindrances arise, get closer. Get closer. See what the component parts are that make a hindrance. Um, ill will, for example, is not one solid thing. Anger is not one solid thing. It may be, uh, it may register physically in addition to the movement of energy in the body along with an emotion or even some, some uh, thoughts. So what are the component parts? Get closer, investigate. And then my reflection is that this process of being in touch with the, um, the hindrances, having a relationship with the hindrances and returning to simple awareness, the heart is softened by this process. Some, uh, one teacher has a, coins this phrase, being compassioned. The heart is softened. So again, Shen Shu's verse. The body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror's stand. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. So the story goes on. The fifth ancestor, Hongren, he sees this verse in the hallway. And the next morning, he praises Shenshu's verse highly to the other students in the temple and encourages them to recite it because uh, he thinks it's a, it's a fine instruction. But in private, he points out to Shenshu that it doesn't display a complete understanding, according to this story. And he counsels his disciple to write another verse in order to... Um, be identified as the sixth ancestor. But in the end, Shenshu is not able to um, write another verse to demonstrate an understanding beyond the first. Meanwhile, there's, um, there is a lay monk in the temple. Uh, in this story, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't have the ability to read or write. And he's from far away. He's from uh, the south of China, as opposed to the north of China, where this story takes place. His name is Huinan. And he's at work threshing rice. He's completely unaware of Hongren's instructions about uh, the poetry contest and this future succession. So um, one day he hears someone passing by reciting the verse. And Huinan realizes that the author in his understanding, doesn't, un doesn't have a complete understanding of the Dharma. So he calls the person back who explains this, uh, explains what's going on to Huinang. Huinang asks him to uh, uh, take, take me to the verse. Let me see it. Takes him there. The, the other person reads the verse to Huinang since he cannot read it himself. And then he requ Huinang requests that his own poem be added to the wall. Huinang's poem goes like this. The mind is the Bodhi tree. The body is the bright mirror stand. The bright mirror is originally clear and pure. 
where could there be any dust? The mind is the Bodhi tree, the body is the bright mirror's stand. The bright mirror is originally clear and pure, where could there be any dust? A play on the, on the original. So in Huenang's verse, we see a slightly different interpretation, that not only is the bright mirror originally clear and pure, but it never needs dusting. And not only that, there's nowhere for dust to fall at all. Another rendering of that last line is, where could dust alight? This is, this is a pretty subtle perception of emptiness. Uh, beyond any sense of there being bounded things or even an idea of a mind. What's interesting to me is that while Shinshu's verse ends with a declarative statement, at all times we must strive to polish it and not let dust collect, Huinung's verse ends with a question, where could there be any dust? So I don't know what you make of this, but I read it as it's an invitation to relationship that Huinang is engaging in conversation and demonstrates his skill about inquiry, inquiry about the Dharma with both teachers and students. So when I envision Huinang as a teacher, it almost feels a little bit like a challenge, like where could there be any dust? Answer, answer me. Um, And this is a skillful means, that, kind of, that um, ability to engage, liberating activity of Buddhas, going beyond even the mirror. So Hongren, in this telling of the story, recognizes Huenang as the heir that would become the next ancestor, fulfilling Hongren's oath. So he passes on the robe and the bowl representing the lineage to Huenang at midnight in secret, admonishing him to leave quickly and secretly. There's going to be a bit of a stir. So it's a pretty dramatic scene, and it's, it's crafted after the fact, actually. It's mythologized. And it's written to emphasize one approach over the other, to emphasize uh, Huenang's interpretation over Shen Shu. Um, but in this case, this is a case of history being told by the victors, and in this case, it's the, the camp that, that was uh, promoting Huenang's interpretation. Yet, the Zen tradition has long understood Shinshu and Huenang actually, rather than being uh, mutually exclusive, that they're, they're an inextricably linked pair. They complement one another. Their perspectives complement one another. So what that makes me wonder is for us, what can we discern about applying Shenshu's polish the mirror approach and applying Huinang's there is no mirror approach when it comes to, to maintaining, returning to, caring for a simple, direct, straightforward relationship to experience. What does Shinshu's polish the mirror approach offer? And what does Huinang's there is no mirror approach offer? And even further, 
what kind of harmony can we find between the, those two? Um, my encouragement is to, to try out, try out these two understandings in different circumstances and see what happens as a, as a way to, to learn about um, how hindrances arise for you and how, how you in your mind return to this simplicity of the practice. So this is a path of some path of simple awareness. It's handed down person to person, warm hand to warm hand, and generation to generation. In one of the sutras, it says it's our duty to keep it well. And that requires that each one of us has some uh, a task before us. Each of us have some work to do. No one can polish anyone else's mirror. No one can penetrate to the vision of Huynang on behalf of someone else. And I encourage all of us uh, to continue on this path together. And we can take a little encouragement to close from Suzuki Roshi's words, his Zen spirit and his celebration of our simple way. September of 69, he said, things that exist are imperfect. No thing is perfect. But in those imperfect things, there is a perfect reality. Things that exist are imperfect. Nothing is perfect. But in those imperfect things, there is perfect reality. Yeah, can we hear in that Huynang's vision or Shen Shu's verse or the child's bright mirror? I hope some of these um, old family stories, old Zen family stories can express something of the simplicity of our practice or call forth something for you about how you relate to the simplicity of our practice. And then some path of inquiry about how you want to relate to these um, hindrances that complexify, complicate. Things that exist are imperfect. Nothing is imperfect. But in those imperfect things, there is a perfect reality. Well, thank you very much.